and everyone tries to enter it by force. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke or letter of the law to be dropped. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so this is the word of our Lord and Master. Well, good morning, folks. Just before we get into the Bible reading, could I just uh, presume on your prayers for a moment? Uh, you should have, if you get our weekly church email, uh, have received uh, an advert that the PCC uh, have agreed for us to put out, which is, we're looking for a PA. And I know that anyone who works for a church, um, we don't really know what they do, and they work for one day a week and all of that. But when you run a 21st century church, all the things that we love, which are discipleship, teaching, evangelism, mission, church growth, all those things, also you have to do the safeguarding, the administration, the bureaucracy, the compliance, da-da-da-da-da. So we need someone who can really help lift off the burden of administration from us. And we need someone who is called to be a servant and who can really help this particular part of the body of Christ, which is us um, flourishing a bit more freely and not drowning under stuff. Uh, we need someone really called and really good. And would you just pray for that? So just, just grab the person next to you. It's a sign of us praying together uh, in agreement. Heavenly Father, thank you that administration is a spiritual gift, and I just want to ask, Holy Spirit, that you stir that up amongst someone here, that you'd prompt them and prod them and lead them into this role that would not only be, only be a blessing to the church, but would be a blessing to them. And we ask for this in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, can you keep on praying, because we've got a hardcore passage this morning. So, Holy Spirit, thank you that you are our teacher, and I ask for your grace to share this morning. Just fresh, fresh grace, I pray. Uh, I ask for your anointing on all of our hearts to write the things of Jesus afresh. Just illuminate him, we pray, in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, I've got one of the most complicated passages, I think, in the whole of the scriptures uh, to share from today. Uh, and it's not only complicated because we've got the hardest parable to decipher of the dishonest manager, uh, but we've also got uh, money and we've also got adultery and remarriage. So um, I just wanted to say... If you visited this morning <laughs> and you've not been with us before and you feel like you're sort of bursting into a party three hours deep and everybody's um, kind of flowing and you're coming in cold, that is probably what it's going to feel like this morning because we are almost 18 months into a series in Luke's Gospel. We've decided to take every single verse and give it some study and analysis, and that's what we're going to do today, and we're not going to avoid or wriggle away from the harder parts, because they're the ones we're all thinking about, um, and I'm going to seek to do it justice, but can I just say this morning, if you hear something that is 
uh, you hear in your head, James is having a go at me right now, honestly, please know that is not my heart and intention. It is simply to share what Jesus seems to be teaching us. And the reason I share in that way is because if you think about what's going to happen for the next few minutes, this is not a business presentation. This is not uh, a lesson in school. We are gathered around what we believe to be God's words to us. And I'm giving you my best possible uh, help to decipher those and apply them as we seek to become more like Jesus and to discover who he is in our lives. And so really, it's not about me delivering a sermon. It's me sort of standing aside saying, this is what I think God is saying to us as if he was here himself this morning. And I can say that confidently because we believe these are his words to us. And if Jesus was amongst us physically, rather than simply by his spirit, if Jesus was amongst us physically, then he, uh, what we have here is the best representation of Jesus' words if he was amongst us. And we believe that for four reasons. The first is, is that as we open the Bible, we believe it's God's word to us because it is an absolute phenomenon. 66 books written by totally different people across time and cultures over several thousand years, and yet, having read this for pretty much 25 years, there's such a unity to the crescendo of it, the shape of the story across 66 different types of books, poetry, history, law, gospels, teachings, epistles, and yet it all is about this incredible Son of God and Son of Man, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is straining towards him and showing us hints and glimpses. And then he arrives and we see this incredible person, God's Son, living amongst us. And then we have to respond to the climax to his earthly ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And then he breathes and sends his Holy Spirit and the church forms. And then we're, we're not only trying to work out what the church is, but we're trying to work out how to do church, which is faithful to the centerpiece, which was Jesus himself. So the phenomenon of the Bible leads us to say this cannot simply be like a history book. Or, or just the best intelligence of human beings. There's something about this which it must be the Word of God. So the phenomenon. The second thing is, we see this as God's words to us because that's what the church, with a big C, down the ages, has always believed. Ever since it began to come into written form uh, in the third century, since then, mainstream, non-weird Christians have always believed this is more than just important, but it's God's word to us. And that's really important to remember because we breathe the cultural air in 2024 of the end of a scientific progressive mindset, which basically means, translated, that we naturally are made to think we're the most important civilization and we're the most intelligent form of human society that's ever lived. 
We naturally sort of are shaped to think like that. But just to sort of unpick that for a minute, it's really interesting that although we naturally think we're more important and back then they were less intelligent, we still teach our children in school Shakespeare, don't we? Even though he lived several hundred years ago. Because, actually, it wasn't that they were savages back then. Because Shakespeare has given to us a gift of learning and understanding about human beings through English and drama and plays and all of that, that we want our children to learn from, even though he was writing in a completely different time. So by understanding that this is God's word, as the church has always believed it, we're actually adopting a posture of humility and uh, respect, really, for those who've gone before us in the church. Phenomenon, church has always believed. Third, this is how Jesus treated the Old Testament. The New Testament didn't exist when he was here, but he would refer to the Old Testament as if it was God speaking, as if it was God's words. And fourthly, that's how the apostles did, the the, the first founders of the church. They also referred not only to the Old Testament, but also to the teachings of Jesus as authoritative and God's word to us. Does this make sense? So, with that in mind, I think if there's anything more offensive in the 21st century than what our culture finds as exclusivity, it is hypocrisy. So therefore, when we open this, we're reading this not to fit into my life and my ways, but to open up to God and to say, how do I need to change and how do I need to amend my ways to reflect more of who you are? Which leads me to this passage. And I'm going to start at the end, go back to the beginning of it, and then finish at the end. And I'm going to start with verse 18. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, I could avoid this verse, but I don't think I can if we want to have integrity and seek to stand under God's word. And the major question I want to ask from touching on this for a few minutes is, how on earth does this throw away from Jesus link to the parable and then how he handles it uh, in the few verses before. So this sounds pretty hardcore. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And if it's God's word that comes to us across time and space and, and different cultures, then it, it is contingent upon us to interpret this faithfully and wisely. And what we find, even just not to do a big Bible study on divorce and remarriage, what we find even just in the teachings of Jesus is that verse 18 is truncated, abridged, compared 
with how Jesus teaches in another place. So if you'll permit me just to dump, jump very briefly out of Luke's gospel into Matthew chapter 19, we'll just touch on a, a, a broader, a, a, an enlarged version of Luke 16 uh, verse 18. In Matthew 19, Jesus offers us 12 verses on marriage and divorce. And in verse 9, Jesus touches on this same area um, as Luke 16, verse 18. In verse 9 of Matthew 19, Jesus teaches, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another commits adultery. Whoever divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus seems, in Matthew 19, to give permission for remarriage on the grounds of marital unfaithfulness. So from all of that, one of the painful things when you, when you enter ordained ministry is you have to take responsibility for who gets married and who doesn't. And one of the really delicate, hard things is when people like Paddy and I get approached and are asked for remarriage. Now, because of Jesus' teachings, and because we're seeking not to stand over the Bible, rather, than, rather submit ourselves under the Bible, then our position as clergy is that we are very, very, very slow to do a remarriage, and if we did, it would be on the grounds if we could prove marital unfaithfulness. Now, there's a brilliant young man at the nine, and look how quiet it's gone in here. <laughs> there's a brilliant young man at the nine, and he, he caught me afterwards, and he said, can you clarify marital unfaithfulness? Because what about domestic violence, what about um, spousal abuse, what about uh, blah, blah, blah. So I think Jesus is, I think, focused here on sexual unfaithfulness. But if you read uh, and delve further into divorce and remarriage in 1 Corinthians, I think, you know, uh, you can work out, uh, if you're careful, slightly wider than simply sexual uh, immorality grounds for remarriage. Let me just also say, for any of us here, we're seeking to look and read the Bible. This is not a discourse on divorce, and I want to show you why I think this is important in the context of this passage in a minute. But one of the reasons that we would be very slow to offer remarriage and would want to delve in as gently as we could pastorally into what's going on is because we have a reverence for the teachings of Scripture and the covenants of God. And just slightly earlier than verse 9 in chapter 19, Jesus affirms and takes us back to one of God's originating creation principles. 
And this is found in Genesis 2 and forms the basis for our understanding of what happens in marriage and what happens in the physical act of sex. And Jesus says, you know, uh, and affirms what happens in Genesis 2, that marriage essentially is the leaving of their family households of two people, a man and a woman, and they come together and they become one flesh. And the act of lovemaking is the physical expression of the covenant of marriage that brings two people together in spiritual union. Now the reason why adultery is so painful in any relationship The reason it's so painful is because what happens in the act of sex, is everyone okay? Church is not boring today, is it? What what happens in the act of sex is much, much more than a release of physical pleasure. What happens in the act of sex is in the physical coming together of a man and a woman within the covenant of marriage, What's happening is there's a binding together, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, a binding together of two people. And the, the physical act of sex is the expression of them being bound together in covenant relationship where two literally become one. So with that understanding, what happens in an adulterous affair, is that that two that have become one, someone now adds a third in, and a fourth in. And pretty much every culture in the world agrees that, you know, more than two in a, in a married relationship is bad news. But that's the pain where people become attached and draw in. And so you see Jesus' teaching affirming what God set in motion from the start of uh, creation history. What you see is Jesus' teaching is actually for our good. So that we don't have a, 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 a sort of bipolar marital relationship. We don't have a mixture of all these other emotional, spiritual, mental, physical ties. Now, despoiling the covenant which God set in motion between this husband and this wife. So we see God's teaching is actually for our benefit. And then there should be all sorts of questions going off. You know, what about when someone gets married and they're really, really young? And what about, what about, what about? And they're all the questions that our hearts ask when we're focused on ourselves. But, but, and then it can seem like if someone's just made a, you know, is there not grace? Well, of, of course there's, there's grace, there's acceptance, there's forgiveness and all of that. But we would be really slow to do a remarriage because all the feelings that happen when something's broken up, that, sorry, let me say this. There's two, let me say this really clearly. There's two reasons Uh, why we would be very slow to do this. One is that we fear the Lord and we don't want to go against his word and what he set in motion is covenants. But the second reason is very simply this, that when we think about ourselves and the desire to be with someone else, 
and to lie with someone else and for our loneliness to be met in the presence of someone else. There's a much bigger covenant that's going on that marriage is a reflection of. And so the whole story of the Bible brings to its conclusion a wedding feast that is the summation of the covenant that was made 2,000 years ago in the body and blood of Jesus. And so in the same way that marriage binds a man and a woman together, in the same way Jesus laid his life down 2,000 years ago and bound, for those who are willing to enter into that covenant, bound himself to human beings and to the church and those who would believe. He literally made his covenant to us. And so whatever happens in our lives, we get him. And so... Uh, you know, I know that's pastorally really difficult, but the truth is that God gives himself to us, and that is the greatest covenant ever. And at the end of the age, there's going to be this incredible procession of the church. And finally, do you know what we get in response is not a crown. It's much more than that. What we get at the end of the age is, is more than a well done from the Father. Do you know what we get at the end of the age? The church comes together and is united With its bridegroom, Jesus, we get him. No longer simply spiritually, no longer simply mentally as we remember him and consider him, but we get him physically as we're united with him forever and ever and ever. And so the greatest covenant has been paid for by Jesus, binding himself to us, and that covenant physically in space and time will be renewed and celebrated and ours forever and ever and ever. Now hold that thought and let's turn to Luke 16 because you should be asking the question, how on earth does this relate to the parable of the dishonest manager? And that's what I did. And I can tell you this, that I, I, I read this a couple of weeks ago and I was like, oh my days. Last week was lovely, wasn't it? We had the prodigal son and the elder brother and the father heart and let's all hug each other and have sloppy kisses and, you know, it's beautiful. So, and then Jesus goes straight into this. And I tell you, everybody, I read eight commentaries this week and they didn't help me a jot. <laughs> I read eight commentaries. And you know what? I, came, I counted them. I came out with six different interpretations <laughs> and, and one of them I read, this lady, she's a professor from somewhere or other, she basically took, took you through, she basically like, took about 20 pages to basically say, I don't have a clue what the dishonest manager's about. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> so, so I'm bringing you the Bible interpreted according to James Decast now, okay? So hear me out. But I, I do just want to say, I'm not making this up. I've wrestled with this. I have earned my crust this week, I'm telling you. I've earned my crust. So, how on earth does divorce and remarriage link with a dishonest manager? Let's work out what's going on. Now, this is a powerful parable if you're a business owner, if you are a landowner, if you are in charge of others, if you're a manager at work, it's a powerful parable because you can imagine how the guy in charge feels. We've got a rich man, and he's got so much that he puts a guy in charge. And the guy in charge is accused of dishonesty. So the guy confronts him, he's ready to let him go, and the dishonest manager thinks to himself, I'm screwed. I'm not strong enough to dig. 
I'm too proud to beg. And so what he does, he goes to all the customers of the rich man and he reduces their debts. And we don't really get 100 grains of wheat, uh, 100 whatevers and jars of oil. But basically, the oil is a reduction of a year's worth of wages. And the wheat is 18 months worth of wages. So this guy is, you know, currying favor with the customers of the rich man and positioning himself so that when he's finally let go, he's going to have friends who will look after him from there on in. Now, if you were a business owner and your, your right-hand person was doing that, you would be raging, wouldn't you? You, you know, it, even if you're a manager at work and your assistant manager was like behind your back just, you know, doing everything dishonestly, you'd be raging, wouldn't you? And the confusing thing of this parable is in verse 8, his, his master commended the dishonest manager because he'd acted shrewdly. So let me give you a couple of different interpretations which I don't think are accurate. The first is... And then he goes on to say, sorry, for the children of this age are shrewder in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. So the first interpretation someone offered was, well, the world's a hard place. There are lots of wicked people out there. Everyone's trying to manipulate you, and we need to be wiser. So I was just like, okay, I don't really know how this links to anything else Jesus is saying. Uh, and also, it, it seems to me that although Jesus says, be wise as serpents, he also says, be innocent as doves. And, you know, uh, I don't know, you don't see Jesus offering business management classes and entrepreneurial webinars, you know, so that we're wiser than the world, you know. Um, and, and listen, let's be honest, the church is always about two decades behind the latest thinking in, in culture, isn't it? So it's clearly not working for us 2,000 years later. So it just, I don't know, it just doesn't seem to fit. Secondly, the other interpretation is, well, do we need to be better with money? And, you know, should, should we actually work our resources and, you know, should we be, um, should we be, I don't know, just getting our money working properly. But then that seems to be undercut by what Jesus goes on to teach from verses 10 to 13. No one can serve God and wealth. If you're faithful in a little, you're faithful in a much. You're faithful in much if you're dishonest in a little. It doesn't seem like dishonesty with money, it just doesn't seem, Jesus seems to contradict that. Like what on earth is, is this about? Now let me, I don't want to linger too long here, but I think the bite of wealth and its attraction is really important for us to grapple with. Because we live in one of the wealthiest places on planet Earth. And Jesus says some, some really powerful teaching, verse 13, no slave can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And then clearly the Pharisees, that was their secret desire because he confronts them because they start mocking him. He confronts them for being lovers of money. Now it's easy to say the Pharisees are the bad guys, boo, hiss, but I just want to challenge us. How much do we think about money? How much do we think about pension and retirement? How much 
do we prioritize those who are wealthy around us, knowing we might get something back in return? If someone came in here looking the business, you know, sparkling and all of that, very articulate, very beautiful, would they more quickly receive an invitation to Sunday lunch than somebody else? I just think we have to have that in our conversation, church. Because money is just a thing, and we have to be free of it. We cannot serve God and wealth. And sometimes God will call us to steward faithfully with generosity to others, and sometimes he'll call us to go to the bank and empty it when he says. And we just need to be free of the grip of money so that we can serve the Lord. But let me return to the parable of the dishonest manager and I'll try and put this together. The master commends him for his shrewdness but then Jesus teaches don't be dishonest and all of that. So what is going on? Now, if you spend any time in business or the world today, I think it's fair to say that people are learning and are relentless and voracious in their appetite to make their money work for them. If you spent, spent time with anyone who works around the city of London, you know, people are focused on making their money work for them. They are dedicated and devoted to sweating their assets, you know, minimizing their liabilities, really focused on their earthly gain. We're living in 2024 in a world where if you have, it seems to accumulate more and be added to, and a world where it's become increasingly difficult for the have-nots to get their foot on the ladder. Is that fair to say? You don't have to be a social commentator, I think, to recognize that. And I think what Jesus means when in the meaning of this parable, I think what Jesus is saying is, look how focused the people of this age are on wealth accumulation or dishonesty to make sure they're looked after. Look how focused they are on the affairs of the world. And Jesus is saying, I wish you would have the same focus on your eternal affairs and the affairs of the heart. Because look how frenzied they are to look after their own interests. Look at the dishonest manager who will, who will, even as he's about to be dismissed, throw away his scruples, screw over his master, and look how focused he is on his state in life. And Jesus is saying, you need to be a lot more focused and you need to be a lot wiser on your eternal affairs and how life's going to be once this world comes to an end. And that comes down to how your heart is. Because when the Pharisees kick off, he then confronts them in verse 15. You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. He's saying, guys, wake up. Look how focused they are on all the dishonest manager is. I wish that you'd pay attention to your hearts. 
teachers of the law, the religious. I wish you would be as focused on how your heart is for what is prized by human beings is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, how does this fit together with divorce and adultery and all of that? Well, I think quite simply, it fits together because the greatest test Jesus has for every single person is where is your heart towards me? And so the questions that remarriage and adultery and and how hard that feels as we read that in 2024, as hard as that feels, where sex or uh, sex is thrown up on a pedestal, or, or loneliness is thrown up as the biggest crushing need in our lives. And those, you know, loneliness is a real thing, and we need to play our part. I'm not saying it isn't. But as those things are thrown up, or as, or as the Pharisees throw up money and put that on a pedestal, Jesus is saying, what is prized by human beings in every culture, sex and money, in every culture, what is prized by human beings is an abomination in the sight of God. Because God knows your hearts. And the greatest test that Jesus is bringing relentlessly again and again and again is where is your heart towards me? And is there anything on the throne of your heart in place of me? So we saw the beautiful nature of the father just last week, didn't we? But we had the prodigal son who, in his heart, had sensual experience. We had the elder brother who, in his heart, had hard work and a sort of slave mindset towards God. And Jesus, again, he's like, he's, he's, he's coming at us. He's twisting the knife in our hearts to cut us open and to say, is there anything before me on the throne of our hearts? And that is the test for every single human being. And that's why Jesus deals with different people in different ways. It's why Jesus encounters the rich young ruler. You remember that story? And he says, for you, my friend, you need to sell all you have. Well, Jesus doesn't teach that we all need to sell all we have. But for this guy, his test was that somehow his earthly possessions had a higher place in his heart than Jesus did. And, and just tracking through Luke's gospel, if you look at it as a whole, it's almost like Luke is throwing Jesus at us and he's confronting our hearts with who he is. And Jesus is, is showing us that all the characters around the fringes have got it. So Simeon and Anna, the elderly, but the holy, the devout, they've got it. We've got the, the centurion, the Gentile. He's got it because he won't even let Jesus come into his house. He's in such awe of him. And Jesus celebrates. What what faith is this? I've not seen this in Israel. The centurion's got it. The sinful woman has got it. You know, we don't know her name or her background, but she will just wash Jesus' feet with her tears and pour it all out and pour out her resources on him because she's got it. There's nothing before Jesus in her heart. And what's going to happen is, is the crowds and the disciples have gathered around Jesus. But what's going to happen over the next couple of months is that crowd and those disciples are going to shrink, 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 shrink. And finally, even right at the end, it's going to shrink and there'll be no one left with Jesus. And there'll be no one left with Jesus and he'll give his life for us. 
And what will happen is, again, the commanding centurion will stand by and he'll suddenly see, confronted with Jesus, body shredded, and he'll see Jesus and he'll say, surely this man was the Son of God. In the eyes of the Jews, a dog, a Gentile, outside of Israel, one of the oppressors, the Roman centurion, was like, surely this man is the Son of God. And they're confronted with who he is. And his question is the same question that he'll gather his disciples before he sends them out. He'll gather his disciples and he'll pick out the guy. And the guy who's like me, and it's Peter. And he'll he'll take him just slightly aside from the others. And he'll say, Peter, my question of all questions, which summarizes the test, which... Luke has been bringing to us the whole way through. The question of questions, Peter, is, do you love me? When you're not going to sit at my right hand in the kingdom and we're all riding sort of western stallions into the sunset and we're going to reign and rule. No, it's going to cost you, you're probably going to get murdered, as he did. No, Peter, your words itself and your heart, your passion are not enough. Because at the very last moments, you deserted me. And now, Peter, before I send you forth to start the church on your shoulders, on you, my rock, I need to know, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me three times? And I I just want to not wriggle out church that I'm so thrilled with what God is doing and how we're growing, but there's a test for every single one of us. Is there anything in front of Jesus? Is there anything that sits on the throne of our hearts apart from Jesus? And that test will come to you often in wilderness times. It doesn't come in the good times, (laughs) but it will come. And there's one way of softening that test, which is before he backs us into a corner, which he will, before he backs us into a corner and presses us up and says, do you love me when you're deserted, abandoned, persecuted, rejected, no money, everything's worked out, full of disappointment, full of dashed hope, da-da-da-da-da, you know, whatever it is. Do you love me? Would you do it all again simply for me? And that's the question I think God is asking the church, not just us, the church right now in 2024. Because the world is going to get harder and harder, I think, for a bit. And we think we're living radically. I thought I was living radically five years ago. I'm like, I was so, you know, I'd sing all the songs, I surrender all, da 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 da. But I was like, I was so soft bellied. And I hope that I'll, I, and God is just saying, Do you love me? And here's the thing here's the thing. As we say, as we commit, as we tear down from our hearts, money, sex, safety, legacy, whatever it is, popularity, as we tear all that down from our hearts, do you know what? We get him. We get him. And Jesus is, is not a, a dogged, sterile, rigid tyrant. What we get is him. 
But the thing is, we, we, sort of, we sort of layered at the moment. We're like we barely, we, we sort of mix in with him because we've got all these other things like in the way. And Jesus is like, move them aside because I need to know if you're my church that you love me. But when you love me, you get me. <laughs> the, the most beautiful one there is. The one who bound himself in covenant to you when you didn't ask for it. Who's pursued you through the ages. Who knew that you'd be sat in this seat today. Who knew all the circumstances of your life. He bound himself to you in covenant. And even when we're unfaithful, we're still attached to him. We're still one with him. This is Jesus. He loves you. His teaching is pure. And it collides with our cultural framework. But so it should. Because he's God and we're not. And his teaching is beautiful and it's an easy yoke and it's light. And we get him, we get him, we get him. And the problem is, we like everything to be sorted and lovely and, and all of that. But the problem is, all our heroes told Jesus they loved him and then were killed. <laughs> Peter said, don't even crucify me the same way up as him. I wouldn't dare see myself fit to be crucified the same way as Jesus. So I just you've got the Bible according to James Decas. But I think it's right. <laughs> God knows your hearts and what is prized by human beings is an abomination, it's worthless. Take the world but give us Jesus. Take the world but give us Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. Yeah. So would you just stand with me for a moment? Oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And would you just begin just for a few moments? Just for a moment, would you just pour out your heart to, to the Lord Jesus? Just tell him you love him. Tell him how wonderful he is. Tell him how glorious he is. There's none, no one like you, Lord. No one like you. We love you. We love your teachings. We love what you did on the cross. We love that you overcame death. We love you. We love you. We love you. There's no one on earth or in heaven brighter, lovelier than you. We bless your name, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And would you just link arms with the people next to you? I'm not going to make you touch hands because I'm sweating like anything. And if you're anything like me... <laughs> Lord, we say as your people, you have full permission to have the highest place in our hearts. And for some of us here, that's going to mean selling all our possessions. For some of us here, it's going to mean taking our cap off in repentance and asking for forgiveness. For some of us here, it's going to mean moving and transplanting our lives to give ourselves. 
For some of us here, it's going to mean getting over all the insecurities and lies of the enemy that he seeks to pollute our ears with and saying, Jesus, I'm here, use me. For some of us, it's going to mean overcoming fear and telling someone tomorrow at work, in the lunch break, do you know what? I just have to tell you, if this was my last day on earth, I just have to tell you about Jesus. It's going to mean different things for different ones of us. But Lord Jesus, we want to say to you, we love you. There's no one higher, no one, um, no one, uh, no one brighter that we want in our hearts. And we fail and we're sorry, Lord. We repent where we let you down and where our hearts get full of the world and full of stuff and we sin against you, we sin against one another. Lord, have mercy on us. Wash us clean. We plead the sacrifice of Jesus 2,000 years ago that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We plead that over ourselves afresh today. And we say, Lord, you have our hearts. Make us your people. Father, thank you that you've given us Jesus. Thank you that at the end of the age, there's going to be this incredible procession for the church across all generations in every time and race and culture. And we're going to gather and process in towards our bridegroom king, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you that we get him. Thank you that there's going to need to be no light because your presence will shine forth and will be in awe and wonder at who you are forever and ever and ever. We bless your name, Lord. Amen. 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 Now, I just want to pray for um, us uh, for a few moments. And uh, if you've got to collect children, uh, go and grab them. I don't know what's going to happen now, okay? But the Lord is here, and I just want to share something with you, and then I'd like to pray. Um, so I was focused on trying to work out divorce, adultery, and money, and dishonest, da-da-da-da-da. So this was not on my frame of reference. I had a busy day yesterday, went to bed too late, and I don't tend to dream I have a dream about every two or three years. Um, and in this dream, I was in a particular context. And um, in the context, there'd been a dry period. And they asked someone to come and do a series of teachings on the Holy Spirit. And I was on the front row. And I hadn't gathered because I was necessarily dry but I just happened to be there. And um, this person began to teach about the Holy Spirit, but taught from Philippians chapter 2. And in Philippians chapter 2, he began to say, in the same way, let your attitude be the same as Christ Jesus, who emptied himself and took the form of a servant and became obedient even unto death. Which in my dream, I was like, that doesn't really sound like teaching on the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but anyway, then they stopped speaking. And then one of the people on the team of this person 
pointed at me and basically said, the Spirit of God's on you. Then in the dream, I flew back about 20 meters, knocked over chairs, went head over heels, and it was just like a ball, like almost like a cannonball, just knocking stuff out of the way. And then I was just, um, just getting absolutely filled, just with the power and presence of God. And then I woke up, and I was in such a deep sleep, I was like, it cannot be that time. <laughs> I, but I, I could just feel like God was still with me and just on my hands and in me, and I sort of stumbled over for early morning prayer. And I just want to share that this morning, because we, as a community, are forming our hearts around the same attitude as Jesus. I've just preached hardcore at you this morning, and what I love about you is that you'll receive it, you'll put it into practice, and that's, that's the life that you want to live. And I don't know what's going to happen, but I just wanted to pray for the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, fill this place. Just come. Come like never before. Come like never before. Fill this church now. Fill our lives. I feel like some of us here are, you're called to the darkness. You're called to the gospel. And, and even now you can just feel the Holy Spirit is on you. Would you just come to the front? Just come now. I just want to call down the Holy Spirit on you. I think that some of us here, you can just sense the Spirit of God um, just beginning to just rest on you. Would you just come as well? Press forward a little, a little bit of those who've slid others in. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. 
Holy Spirit, just fall on your people. Fill this church, fill this people.